Dune Imperium, For the King and Me, and Eternals. This is Staying In. Dan and Pete, I'm going to count you in. And remember, we've all got our note. Right, right. We've all got our note. Put that note in your mind. Okay, three, two, one. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. To you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. Can you tell who's got sleeping children? Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, dear Christopher. Chris. Chris Christopher. I'll go high. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. And many more. And many more. Happy birthday, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you. Did you have a good day? Yeah, it was a nice day. Yeah, I mean, I had to go to work, but it was a Ooh. very, very lovely day. Do you know what? It honestly was one of the best birthdays I've had in a long, 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 long time. Ah, that's nice. You know, Why? You know, well, you know, there's instances where, like, I mean, to get materialistic, like the gifts I received were just so beautiful and just so treasured and so thoughtful, but just like I'd received like a flood of communications from people I hadn't spoken to in a while, and it was just mm. really, really nice just how that kind of all happened, uh, really. So I had a really, really lovely. Uh, birthday actually it was really really nice go on then talk us through the loot that's all we're here for is the materialistic sweet sweet stash the three of you delivered in more ways than one it was (laughs) it was extraordinary (laughs) Uh, i genuinely genuinely moved to tears i would say genuinely i'm not afraid to admit that uh i got an incredible i mean it was like the proper holy trinity of perfect gifts really So I got from you, I got Above and Below, a Ryan Lockett game. And I'd mentioned, I think once or twice uh, to a couple of you in the past that I've always (laughs) wanted to own a Red Raven game or play a game by Ryan Lockett. So that was just an absolute treat to get. I got Volume 2 of Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughan, which I know I've lent you the first volume of that, Sam, uh, which I I absolutely love it. It's just this giddy, kind of propulsive, Stranger Things-esque um wise cracking coming of age story mm-hmm. really I, I remember I, I read the first i read i think i'm sort of halfway through it now and i read it and i uh, messaged you immediately saying that i think brian k vaughan is becoming my favorite comic book writer and the uniqueness of all his creations is 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 stunning where scott snyder i think is is incredible and i think he's my favorite batman writer all his stuff tends to skew towards the same sort of themes and genre which i don't think is a a bad thing at all he knows what he excels in and you write what you and you should write about what you know which in scott snyder's case is is leaving his sons without a dad but brian k vaughan like why the last man saga and now paper girls like it's it's quite a it's quite an, a sort of body of work and it's not bad is it no 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 it's not bad at all it's safe pair of hands really absolutely and and the third of the three gifts I got from you was get this well mm. you, you know what it is so I don't know why I have to add tension <laughs> uh, a Lego version of a bonsai tree for me to build I'll still probably knowing my track record of house plants somehow kill it <laughs> yes. Mm even though it's made of plastic, but genuinely that was perfect. I mm. cannot wait. I haven't had time to get to anything like that sort of stuff at all since my birthday, really. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down and putting that together. What I really, really love, and I didn't realize this until I flipped the box over, is that you, you can, if you want to, shed its leaves or let it blossom at instances. Uh, I don't know if I'll remember to do that per se. I might just have all the seasons at once. Mm. It it won't be it won't be like a, a physical barometer for your mental health if I walked into your flat and all the leaves have fallen off the bonsai. I'm like, oh, Chris. Oh, Chris. Well, like oh, E.T. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else did I get? I got The City of Mist by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, who's one of my favourite mm. Spanish authors. He wrote yes. The Shadow of the Wind years yes. ago. I've still got one book on his shelf. I've not read from that series, The Labyrinth of Spirits. And this is the next one, which is a series of short stories set at that time in Barcelona. Um, I got a book of The Art of Spirited Away by Studio Ghibli, which is just stunning. Absolutely stunning. I got uh, Batman Eternal Volume 1, which I'd never read. Uh, My brother bought me that. It's good, that. Speaking of Scott Snyder. Yes. And James Tinney in the fourth, I think. Tinney in the fourth, yes. 
and yeah and many other things as well really but it's just really it's been really really lovely genuinely mm. really really stoked so thank oh. you again gentlemen oh it's nice the last birthday of the year I thought you were going to say like ever. I was like, oh God, what do you know? That <laughs> I don't. Birthday, yeah. <laughs> a bit ominous. Yeah, last birthday of the year. Closer now to 40 than I was last week. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do you think it'll be like getting to 40 for us? Like, what do you think? Because, like, I don't feel like I'm 36. <laughs> 36. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm 36. There, there came a point, like when I turned 34, that after that point, I've, I've, I've always had to just think for a moment what my age is. Yeah. yeah. Up until then, I knew exactly what my age was, and mm. now I have to kind of stop and think. I think I've kind of plateaued, mm. not in terms of life, but I think I've plateaued in terms of just my mental age. Now I am perpetually going to stay at this age, really. I think. Oh, yeah. It feels so like you'll it. always be mentally 36. Yeah, that's what okay. I reckon. People say that 50 is the new 40. Yeah, they're mainly 50-year-olds. <laughs> That's fair. How how old do you think we'll all live to? Wow. I mean, wow. So, yeah, I, like... I've, got, I've got the inside scoop on this, Pete. Because on my first day at primary school, Luke Kemp read my palm and told me I was going to die at 85. 85? Brilliant. And my first day of primary school. I, I well, once... Listener, I, tune back in in 50 years. Uh, uh, I was in Ireland once and I went into a bar and this woman mm. grabbed me and read my palm. And she told me, <laughs> she told me that one day I'll, ha- I'll be involved in a horrific accident, mm-hmm. um, but I will survive. So even though that was quite tragic, it did... Did, I did leave that pub with some sort of sense of invincibility. <laughs> you know, I was on the, I was on the plane, I was on the Ryanair flight home, like ah, sorry, actually, sorry everyone. <laughs> actually, like that's that's really interesting because does that mean you can just get into as many accidents as like you've you've got one, like like you'll definitely survive one of them. So. It just means that you can live your life however you want until you have that accident, and then suddenly, oh my god, I'm negative a hermit. <laughs> I'll be like that guy at the end of um, Final Destination, you know, when he's in that shed, and he's like, for some reason, he goes to that fisherman's shed, and he has to like cover all like the the fishing poles and things in like sellotape so he doesn't get killed, and he has to like open tins with gloves and sponges and oh, things. Yeah, I think I will live to 140. Because they've already said, right, and I can't remember who they are, but they've said that the first person to live to, I want to say a thousand, has been born. Yes. That, that, my, my, my child and, and, and Dan's child are possibly maybe the infinite generation. Now that, that's exciting. It's a bit, it's a bit rubbish though, isn't it? Just, just missed out on it. What, we've just <laughs> missed it. We just yeah, missed the that cut. Actually, yeah, <laughs> So, so obviously, it was, it was your it was your birthday, Chris, and we did have some sort of celebrations. Pete and Dan, unfortunately, you couldn't make it, uh, but we did celebrate. Um, Pete and Dan, you might be interested that apparently Chris is a whiskey sours drinker, which yes. oh, very nice, which yeah, shocked good. me. Yeah, yeah, did it shock Chris? And I had a Stop. little bit of a headache the next day because, as you say, I'm 36 now, and yeah. even a, a, a modicum of booze would give me a little bit of a hangover, but it was very I'm, pleasant. I'm just thrilled to know that I'm thrilled to know that your stomach is accepting whiskey again. After I know after after our, you, after drought. your 21st birthday, Peter Wellington, which I won't repeat yeah. on this pod, it is somewhere outside out there in another episode at some point. Yeah, but how nice. you wrecked my stomach? I don't think I was there for that. Mm. I don't know if we were pals. We must have been pals. Well, no, we weren't all friends. No, but we weren't all we enemies. Weren't spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. So <laughs> we were approaching pals. <laughs> approaching pals. <laughs> Me, Chris, and a mutual friend got together, had whiskey sours, and played uh, played games as 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 we do now. Um, and it was a, it was a it was a lovely evening. We carried on our well. This is kind of, this evening was planned for your birthday, Chris, but it was also planned after we'd come out of June because both you and our and our friend Matt sort of cornered, put me in a corner, and said, "We need to we need to we need to play June Imperium with you. June Imperium. You need to play it. You need to play it. It's yeah. great." And then we put a date in our diary uh, then and there. So we played June Imperium, yep. which was which is really good. I really yep. liked it. 
it, in terms of worker placement games and deck building games, I think it's it's definitely up there. And, and and the theme, oh, the theme is is really really good. Like, yes, yeah, it really. It I think one of the things that that June has is definitely a rich sort of cast of characters and definitely like a cast of of houses they all play into into those themes really really well like chris was playing as paul atreides and like basically within the first two turns he basically become a spice master and like he was just like riding worms gathering spice just like you know just had all those connections and matt was playing um as baron harkonnen and basically we were all convinced all of us that chris was going to win and and it was just like well what's the point of even i was just like what's the point of playing anymore like chris is chris is going to win we can't stop him and then basically matt as the baron pulled out the win on the very last turn and uh and it was just like yep that's a very harkonnen harkonnen thing to do yeah, no, but what was lovely as well is he he wasn't like he was in private going, oh, they don't realise I'm going to win. He had no idea. He just happened to draw the cards he needed because as well as being a worker placement, June Imperium is also a deck builder. And it's those and, and that synergy is something that's become quite popular at the moment. Lost Ruins of Arnak is another that does something similar, worker placement with deck building. So essentially everyone starts the same deck of cards. There's variable player powers, but it's about... The luck of the deck, the luck of the draw in terms of drawing cards and playing them and then buying cards from a market, which you can then use to pump up your mm. deck. And then the tricky thing in June is in those finding those rare instances when you can actually discard cards because it's a worker placement. If Sam was to go to the place where you can discard cards, oh, bugger, I can't go there now. Yeah. So and that become and that was one of the reasons that I've struggled with the, the game we play was because I, I hadn't really adopted a good um, discarding strategy instead what i did was i would i just basically made it so my character kept just drawing loads and loads and loads of cards to kind of mitigate that really so i was cycling for my deck very quickly but i was more it's a very paul to... atreides thing to do though he's it very is. overloaded classic paul he's got a lot on his plate but i also say and i don't know if you agree with this sam because we've not spoken about this it's one of those rare games where actually the fact that it's the film tie-in to June and the fact that, you know, I'm yes. playing Paul Atreides and it's Timothy Chalamet on my, you know, on my player board. That yeah. actually didn't put me off because it's not no. a photo. It's not like The Expanse, which we spoke about a few yeah. episodes back. You know, if you'd never seen the film, you go, oh, yeah, cool, grand. It, it is a really, really interesting game because it captures the kind of the political intrigue of the game. And it's, it depends really what you want to kind of do. If you want to engage in conflicts and fights, you can do that, but you can also pick and choose not to go into those conflicts. And sometimes actually knowing when not to fight is just as important as knowing knowing when to fight, even though I think those two things are the same thing I've just said. Yes, they are. But we we all get you. And and, and like, it's... I mean, this isn't the game I want to talk about, but hey, we're here now. Um, And it's also Direwolf Digital Make It, which uh, we will all know because they made the app for Root. Well, well... (laughs) I know them because they did the app for the Pokemon trading card game. (laughs) Okay. Which I won't go into it further, but I'm just laying some seeds down. Just laying some delicate seeds down. World building. Just some world building. So it's called, what's it called? Uh, The Pokemon trading card. Foreshadowing. All right. That's what we're doing. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. We're doing foreshadowing. So Pete's going to talk about Pokemon. Yeah. Do you just want to do that now? No. I mean, I finished my point. No, no, I'm going to wait for a, an, a, an opportune time in another podcast, in a future podcast. Oh, you, you right. You don't okay. know when it will come yeah. up. But just going back to June Imperium, just ever so slightly, I think the worker placement game I've had the most exposure to is probably Lords of Waterdeep, which is usually lauded as like, you're just getting into board games. You're just learning about worker placement. Have you played Lords of Waterdeep? Here it is. And whereas I think that game is fine. And it's nice. I think it has definitely has flaws, especially when it comes to things like when the thing you want to do is blocked by another player offering up different options and avenues. I think June Imperium does a superb job of always offering up something yeah. that you can do, which is beneficial and doesn't feel like the B or C option. It feels like slightly on par with what you were going to do, which I think is an exceptionally tricky thing to pull off and also it handles first player turns really well which is always a thing that irked me with lords of Waterdeep, where you felt like 
you're wasting a turn just to be the first player next turn. But how Dune Imperium handles that feels a lot more unilateral and democratic and everyone sort of gets a piece of that first turn pie naturally as the game goes along. So actually, you know, if you would say, let's play a worker placement game tonight, Sam, <laughs> I'd, I'd probably plump for Dune Imperium. Did you see? Did you see? I was reading a news report today. I know this this dates the podcast somewhat, but like uh, of them firing a dart into the moon, uh, in, into not our moon, sorry, into like an asteroid around some kind of moon um, in in the solar system to try and test the potential of how, to what extent can we veer an asteroid off course if one was coming towards the Earth. They're basically replicating Armageddon. Yeah, yeah. I, I I did read that, but it, but can I just <laughs> just just to clear something up? It's not going to actually be a dart. No, of course it's you not know, a dart. It's not going to have Jim the, Bowen there. Phil the power tailor's not standing at the hockey like... Yeah, 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 yeah. There's only one yeah. word for that, magic darts. <laughs> like Bruce Willis <laughs> drilling a hole. Oh, one of my favourite things you can see on YouTube is the is Ben Affleck's uh, director's commentary to Armageddon where he just rips the... Like he just rips the script to shreds and just like takes the mick out of the whole film. It's just like he just he just goes on massive rants about like the leaps of fantasy that that that, that script takes, where it's just like <laughs> Bruce Willis can't <laughs> can't train an astronaut how to use their drilling equipment, so he has to go to space. <laughs> well, it's like Ugh. it's like when I when I did geology A level. Um, my geology teacher made, made just us like watch that, for, yeah. ma- no made us no 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 made us watch for one lesson the core about you know and humanity drilled to the center of the earth and basically he 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 lowered the volume and it was just him talking over it for the full length of the film about how it was wrong <laughs> this is just this is just somebody who before youtube wanted to be a youtuber like this is this is a like you know mr jenkins reacts <laughs> like, word up is your boy mr jenkins <laughs> but one of the other games we played uh, that evening was kindly sent to us from coiled spring and uh, they sent us a copy of for the king brackets and me closed brackets um which is another game from yellow who we've featured quite a bit recently, actually. And because they're making some good stuff that we are interested in. And this is actually a, a reprint, a re-implementation, a re-implementation of a game called Biblios, which you may or may not have heard of. And re-implementations really interest me because it's usually the sign of a good game that either was made at the wrong time when different things were the zeitgeist. So it got splattered a theme got associated with it that you know just didn't suit the gameplay at all so biblios was a game set in a monastery and had things to do with like books and being in a library and even though like the actual gameplay i was interested in didn't really feel like the best theme so for the king and me brings definitely a different theme into it where you're basically playing ministers and you're all vying for the best roles in this royal palace. You're vying for the best jobs in this royal palace. Basically, like a, a young king is ascended to the throne and you're seeing a, a sort of a vacuum of power there. So you're trying to gather the best jobs in the royal house. So therefore to give yourself as a minister more power and sway over this, over this young king. And even though that sounds quite dramatic and something that Voltaire would write about, it's actually quite done in a very humorous way. Like the art style is very like Ardeman, would you say, Chris? Oh, very much so. It's the first thing I thought of when I looked at it. There's one particular character which he put up on the Instagram that was just became I absolutely fell in love with. It was a bit like that particular figure from Splendor. (laughs) Oh, the Gant Man. The Gant Man, we were just obsessed. Oh, the Gant Man! We were just obsessed. And every time, and it's really lovely, every time I play Splendor, that card comes up and whoever I'm playing say, oh, it's the Gant Man. It's often, the per- it's often with people who don't understand what I mean by that. <laughs> yeah, I love the Gant Man. Uh, but yeah, but the, the, the art style of The King and Me is, is just as evocative. Like, all the characters in it and all the cards in it scream personality. Anthony uh, Weinstock um, did the art for this game. 
And, you know, any any card game, especially when, you know, you're doing kind of sort of abstract things like vying for royal roles to bring that to life, I think is a is a bit of a masterstroke and works really well. How the game actually plays um, is in two parts. So there's the first part is like an I split you choose uh, kind of part of the game. The second part is like an auction. So in the front of the table, in the middle of the table, you have these uh, sort of these royal portraits. And then underneath each of them will be a specific job. So each of these portraits represents a thing like military, entertainment, household, and then a job underneath it. And each of those jobs will have a value between six to one. So for example, in uh, job number six, the six point job in cleaning is something like royal butler but the one point job in cleaning is something like was it something chris wasn't something like royal um chamber pots something royal, it was like chamber pot cleaner which is in some ways a different kind of butler yes two t's so the so what you're attempting to do is gather cards in your hand and each card in your hand will have a particular color and a particular number so say for example this cleaning areas household area is orange if you want to get one of those orange jobs you've got to have the most amount of cards totaling up the highest number at the end of the game and then you will win if you've got the most points you will win that top job and that number against that job is basically victory points to the end of the game so everyone's kind of looking at the jobs on the table seeing which ones they want to go for and during this first part of the game you're trying to get those cards into your hand that's going to help you in the in the next game. So what you do is you look, you pick one card up off the deck, you look at it, and then you have to decide what you're going to do with it. And you've got three options. You either keep it for yourself, you either put it in the table for the other players to then get, take from, or you put it in the middle of the table face down, ready for the second half of the game. And I played a couple of games that have been like this recently. And... Um, it's actually a mechanic that I've begun to really enjoy. I think we've like New York, New York Slice, New yep. York Pizza uh, is ha- yeah, Hanami Koji as well. Hanami Koji is it's quite similar, and I and I love that internal struggle of picking up a card and going and looking at it and going right, this benefits me, but there could be something better, or this benefits another person around the table, but I don't want them to have it. And those wonderful secret grimaces that were happening around the table when we were playing it, Chris, when you could see someone was picking up a card and going, having that internal fight of, shall I gamble? Shall I just, you know, maybe there might be something better to come in the deck and I don't want to give up something? Or equally, not being able to take a card in hand and having to give it to another player is also a wonderful side effect of, of how this part how this first part works and so this first part kind of goes on you're collecting cards in your hand as well as cards that enable you to win jobs at the end of the game there's also cards that represent money and treasure which is important for the second half and there's also cards that allow you to change the value of the jobs that are currently listed or posted so you could change a three to a four or you could change a two to a one so if i know for example Dan, that Chris is collecting lots of orange cards, I could start devaluing the victory point worth of the jobs in the orange sector. And he could consequently devalue ones that he knows I'm going for or boost up another set for another that that he's going for. So that goes on until the deck's empty. Then we get to the second half of the game, which is pretty much when the game comes absolutely and springs to life and kind of really switched for me and went, "This this is... interesting and i'm bringing this to the table definitely again because you have an auction so if you remember during my long explanation for the first half of the game that you're putting cards face down in the center no one takes those until this part where each card gets turned over one by one and then there's an auction to see who wants it and suddenly then it's well, Chris, you're the worst person ever in an auction, which is which is quite quite a sight but to see. Ironically, I won the game. <laughs> you did win the game, but maybe it was your terrible auctioning tactic that um, that led you to the win. 
Well, what I find really interesting about this is that when you're when you're drawing the cards to kind of choose where to put them, you, you have to make you look you draw the cards initially in the first phase one at a time. So if you've got a card in your hand, okay, I feel like I should get rid of this card, but what if it's actually the best card I'm going to get this time round? Yeah. So so it's not just the case in that second round you're just going through the pile of the worst cards that people have. No. There'll be some genuinely good gems in there and there'll be some moments where you're thinking, oh gosh, yeah, I remember when I put that down. Oh God, now I've got to pay for it again. <laughs> but what's really interesting as well is you've only got so much money and those money is also cards. So there is this really interesting push and pull where you're trying to goad other people into spending all their money around the table. So it frees you up then to kind of clear up and take other cards that no one else can afford. But also as well, there'll be instances where you go, okay, they've got it in them. I can see on the table they want to bid on this. If I just push them again and they'll say, I'm not bidding, you're like, oh, no, I'm stuck now with this. I've got to pay for this. Great. (laughs) And that that the second phase i think was really it, it became this really funny kind of almost party game really it, it was it was an auction round that hit more for me than say something like for sale whereas for sale has a good is, is a is a good game the stakes in the auction are not really understood until you've maybe played three or four games however immediately in uh, for the king and me when you enter that auction stage you immediately know what the stakes are you know what cards you the 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 value of the jobs are there in front of you you can see in your hand how weak and strong you are in certain colors so immediately you go into that knowing kind of what you have to go for and how much sort of money you're willing to to spend on it another twist of that auction phase is obviously there will be gold cards that turn up in the auction but to buy those you have to bet with cards in your hand rather than actual cards that are worth treasure or money so if you want to stay active in later rounds of the auction or you want to get more money you have to start sacrificing your own cards which means there's this like almost like double think part of the game where you're thinking of right i know chris has got a lot of blue cards so i could just get rid of those or I can know I can sacrifice some cards that I've got quite a lot of coverage in because I think I can still stay around some pace at the top without having so many of that particular colour. So the stakes are really, really high, and, that, and that, I, I guess that's what you want when you get to an auction game. We, as well, is becoming a running thing for us at the moment, Sam, because... Uh lockdown has eased in the uk yes uh, it's meant that we've been able to go to the we're basically trying to catch up on a year's worth of years a year oh. of not being able to go to the cinema this is the most i've been to the cinema regularly in yeah. probably since the lord of the rings films came out and i mean they were once a year <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh we it was interesting you pete talking about living to 140 because <laughs> Go on. The film that Sam and I saw was the latest yes. Marvel film. Mm-hmm. And Marvel are now churning out loads of stuff at the moment. As of today's recording, the first two episodes of Hawkeye have just dropped, which I've not watched yet. But we may talk about that in a future episode. Sam and I went to see Eternals. Now, we have a claim to fame here. Do we? Do we? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Schoolboy we- Chris. Yes, so I did actually, yes. I'm just going to pick the name up off the floor as I say it. I went to school with a member of the cast, actually, yes. Can I Can I just say, during the screening, Chris did go to pains to actually point that out, even though I already knew that Chris yeah. went to school. Well, no, Chris attended the same school as Kit Harrington. Yeah, and okay. college. I'd forgotten I went to college also with him. Well, no, you didn't go with him. He no, went, with went him. to every the day. same. Yeah, went to the same, yeah. yeah. So... We have two connections then. Oh, oh my God. The other connection is one of the actors that is in it is a person called Kamal Nanjiani. Some, and my understanding is that he's a he's a comedian, like very popular. He, he was kind of like a bit of an internet sensation before the internet, before like YouTube mm-hmm. and all that sort of yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. Like Kamal is part of staying in podcast... Yes. which we used to get emails for from people yes. when they came along after we'd started up. And there might still be some people listening to us who are like, when's Kamal going to come on? <laughs> the answer is... Which is going to make it confusing yeah. when we start talking about his film. 
Yes. Right, right, they, right. They gave, they gave us a shout out, didn't they, on their show? Because we, yeah, kept, as we, you said, we, Pete, we kept getting their mail, and we, we, and we bless them, we got loads of people asking, you know, saying that we should be nominated for the podcast awards, thinking we, we were, were them. Like, so we yeah, got a lot of traffic sent our way, and um, which was very, very generous. But yeah, it was very, very nice of them, and they were actually really good sports about the whole thing, which was really, really nice. So now yeah. we're talking about their movies, and so now we can, we can really yeah. put the boot in. <laughs> yeah, and I should, I should clarify that even though we've got such close links to high profile people, Sam. And mm-hmm. I didn't go to the premiere. We weren't invited. You didn't. You didn't no, get invited. Didn't. No. Mm. Uh, so well, gonna... Chris, it would have been that you went to the same cinema at the premiere, but just not at the yeah. same time. <laughs> the right. Okay. So yeah, I did. I, I mean, I got. I, I mean, I. I did small talk with a guy at school and stuff. We used to play football occasionally, like you know, when there was a football in the. Uh, yeah. And last yeah, time I you saw li- him, yeah, every time he came on the screen, you were like, "Yeah, yeah, Westmith Massive or whatever it was." was <laughs> He's like... representing. He's representing Worcester. You know. Yeah. Him and the source. That's all we've got. The source. And <laughs> yeah, the I thought source. the source was. I thought the source was like some sports star name or something. <laughs> the source of all greatness. Right. Um, Steve the Source yeah. Bruce and he's and he's and he's good in this he's really good he's really funny in this he actually has a lot of the levity it comes from him actually in this which is really cool um, so this is from Chloe Zhao who I don't know if you've seen Nomadland which is on Disney Plus with Francis McDormand uh, a fantastic director like I think everyone was amazed that Marvel had secured this director for the project really they themselves a big fan of Marvel films and superhero films they were particularly taken by uh, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel in terms of how it was filmed because if you remember that very first trailer for when I remember watching the Man of Steel trailer and it is like a Terrence Malick film the way it's just filmed it is stunning ultimately yeah. I would argue the trailer is better than the film although I need to revisit it because I think like I quite, I quite like some bits of Man of Steel yeah I think I remember liking it too I just think you just get a bit fatigued by the blowing up of buildings and stuff at the end really Absolutely. but I think but she was really taken by that and this is a film that's a really a kind of um it's a meditation on humanity i would say and it's probably its biggest question is are we worth it i would mm-hmm. say it's the l'oreal of eternal films just to give pete an idea of kind of the director that chloe Zhao is yeah so he knows kind of vaguely where we're at vaguely where we're at yeah. so chloe Zhao is the kind of director who only films during magic hour so that's a specific like 40 minute window when the sun is just about to start to set. Why do they do that? That seems like they're making quite a lot of work for themselves. Because <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you haven't got a, you haven't, yeah, yeah, Hollywood doesn't have an answer, does it? No, but Pete, I think Pete because the opposite of that was what George Lucas did with the Star Wars prequels which was a green screen. Yes. Right, okay. Basically sorry. the light is, you know, it's the magic hour where the light is just is just perfect and you don't really need any external lighting right. to really light the scene and it generally makes things look really good. It does mean there's quite a lot of lens flare because obviously the sun is quite low. <laughs> but that's, that, you know, and she has won an Oscar for best film. So like, just to give you an doing. idea of... She knows what she's doing with the camera. Yeah, yeah, but she very much does. So the premise mm-hmm. is this, uh, Pete. Over 7,000 years ago, 10 immortal superpower disciples, which are known as Eternals, are sent by a celestial to Earth to exterminate a race of creatures that is plaguing early humanity. These are called deviants. Over the centuries, they complete their mission, adopting Earth as their home, as they await their call to leave. And what's interesting is that many of our myths, our world myths, have been woven by their exploits. So you've got the eternal Circe, Thena, and Icarus and Festos being part of ancient Greek culture and those mythos. Gilgamesh from ancient Mesopotamia, uh, Makari from Roman, and Kingo from Babylonian and Sprite from the Celtic kind of myths. And so you're getting this cutting back and forth from this period, as we see them at different chapters throughout Earth's history, humanity's history, I should say, to the present day where they in the present day they've kind of scattered themselves across the globe and integrated to varying degrees of inhumanity however there are kind of rumors of a return of these deviants but these ones are different because they were like um have you seen 2001 pete yes like my my favorite movie so you know the 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 monolith in 2001 Mm. so the eternals are, are quite similar to that so one of the one of their basically their jobs on earth whilst they're waiting to leave is not only to destroy these deviants but also to advance civilization 
okay. whilst they were whilst they were there. So there's quite some. There's actually some lovely scenes where um, is it Hephaestus? Yeah, is um, basically dreaming up like machines and engineering and going like yes he's like standing there in babylonian going you know look at this this is the steam engine this is gonna blow their minds and they're like we need to dial it down a little bit and he's just like right here's the plow yeah (laughs) you're happy now but i'm a big fan of these narratives of getting the band back together where like you've had a group of people that in the past were a real strong unit and then were cut to the present and they're all kind of scattered and it's about getting people to kind of come back into the fold. I'm really interested in terms of just seeing when they've all kind of dispersed and gone their separate ways, the tensions that occur when you try to bring them all back together. And there are some tensions here really because some of the Eternals have really kind of just humanised themselves and become part of that life. Others have never really settled. They're waiting for that call to go home. Others are really just at odds in terms of what humanity's done to itself. And they're really kind of thinking, well, what's the point? You know, the, these, these people don't know how to look after their planet. Clearly, you know, these people, you know, these Eternals have lived through 7,000 years. And it makes it a very interesting Marvel film because the Marvel Universe is 10 years old, really. Well, 13 years old. Uh, I did the maths on this. That is like 0.2% of what the Eternals have experienced. So really, mm-hmm. everything in the MCU, from Iron Man to Endgame, is just a tiny blip. It's insignificant, really. And that really yeah. puts things into perspective because this is a long film and it is it has a particular pace that is quite slow and Absolutely. reflected. But that is indicative of the fact, my argu- argument is, that these people, their perception of time is completely different mm-hmm. for them. A year is just a minute, essentially. It's a complete blip. So they've got all this time to think, to meditate, to ponder. And what Chloe Zhao wanted to do with this was she wanted to try and make it as epic as Endgame, but also retain a degree of intimacy. So there is this little bit of a kind of an expansion and contraction at times where you've you've got these incredibly world-changing events. Because in some respects, this is... This is a this is really big, you know. It's the scale of the planet, really, and I think it, it jumps between more locations than any other Marvel film in history, really. But at the same time, it is about the relationships between these ten Eternals. Some of them are love relationships. Others are strictly speaking platonic. Others are kind of more antagonistic, say for example. And what I find really fascinating about this is how they're not defined by their powers. Yes, you've got somebody who's got very powerful fists to punch things. Yes, you've got Angelina Jolie as the Fiend of the Warrior. Yes, you've got Icarus, who's basically Marvel's version of Superman, but they're not defined by that, defined by other things. And as they, the longer they've spent on Earth, the more kind of human they've become to some degree, whether they like it or not. And I found that really quite interesting, that kind of family dynamic. It is not your typical Marvel film. It has a completely different rhythm, completely different yeah. rhythm. Yeah, I think it will appeal more to in some respects, more to non-Marvel fans. The stuff that irritated me was the stuff where it starts to be a Marvel film, where, mm. you know, you've got your post-credits things, other kind of touchstones. They mention, like, Steve Rogers and, you know, all the Captain at the Avengers and stuff, really. But what I quite like is they're not just going back in time and reliving all the Marvel moments from the Eternals' perspective, because, again, that's 0.2% of what they've yeah. experienced. Instead, as Sam says, you go to Babylonia, you know, you go to Egypt... You 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 uh you go to there's a there's a very poignant moment where Hephaestus is in Hiroshima and yeah. he's just weeping. This is the person who said, oh, "Let's give him the steam engine. Won't this be great?" And you cut yeah. to 1940s and he's like, "What the hell have I done? This is my fault." Yeah, and that that is you know it's like, are we worth it really? And you know, there's something inherently post-human about this film that I find quite interesting. And to what extent are we worth saving? Because it's something that's never questioned in a Marvel film. You know, all these exploits, you know. Ultron chucking like a town on top of the planet. Oh gosh, we need to save the planet. But actually, are we worth it? Yeah, are we? Like half, half the planet gets destroyed, and it's just like no one questions. Of course, we're going to bring everyone back. You know, that's the kind of thing. I, 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 I think the Eternals is 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 lovely, and I and I really have a lot of time for it, and I really want to see it. I'm, I'm desperate, desperate to see it again. It's got a bit of crit- critical kicking. That's that's what I was going to pick on because mm. it apparently tested. Uh, it was the worst testing uh, Marvel movie when it was in front of like whatever test or- test audiences is that what they're called? Yes, test screenings, test screeners. screenings, screeners, screeners. screeners. Yeah. Uh, 
so so why do you think it's divisive? Because I've seen people who are ranting and raving about it and saying, really great, love it. And I've also seen people saying, eh, you can skip it. I don't know, ask Dan. Oh, oh, I feel, I feel there's tension in the group. Uh, on this podcast, we like to be positive. We don't like to talk about things that we don't like because it's not fun right. for us. It's not fun for people who are listening. But we're talking about Eternals. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. I really, really didn't enjoy this film. What... What was it then that put you off? Like, what was the what was the thing about this movie that kind of rubbed you up the wrong way? I think on 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 paper, there's there's a lot to like about this film. Um, as as Chris alluded to, you have a very interesting director with a very distinct uh, visual style, which is uh, which it does look like no other Marvel film before it, which is which is fantastic. We want changes, we want new ideas, new visions, new voices coming into this. It has a very, very diverse cast, which is long overdue, um, and it's a it's a very good cast. The treatment of there's of certain relationships in it, um, and certain homosexual relationships in it are very well dealt with, and again, long overdue, and not not dealt with in a way that kind of feels token. It just feels natural, which is fantastic. But the issue I had was the word I keep coming back to is confused. The film feels confused. Chris mentions kind of going back in time and forward in time. It seems to jump around an awful lot. It's a long film, but you've got ten characters, and I think only two of them feel developed for me. Ten kind of Eternals. Only two of them really feel developed. The rest of them have very little screen time to really kind of really get kind of underneath the skin of their characters. Um, there are some enjoyable characters. I really liked uh, the character of uh, Fastos. Uh, Gilgamesh, I thought, was brilliant. Kingo um, was great, although I think sometimes played a little bit too comic relief uh, for, for my liking. But you don't have enough time with all of the characters to really let them kind of settle in this world. And so when it comes to kind of in the final kind of climax, in the, kind of, as you enter the third act, some of the decisions the characters make don't make sense to me and I'm questioning them and I feel like okay well there's going to be that doesn't make sense there's going to be a twist and then there's not a twist and I I don't understand why they've made decisions they have because the film hasn't kind of given me given me that time Chris mentioned kind of uh, that there's a, there's a point in the film with the character of Fastos at Hiroshima very poignant moment however there's there's I don't feel like the film earns that because it doesn't give it doesn't give that character the build to get to that point mm. it's a it's a it's a very poignant moment but as i say it's just it's not earned and it would need there's several kind of story threads or character relationships where i feel like there are scenes missing there's one relationship which appears to come out of nowhere is quickly forgotten again and i feel like there were f- like three or four scenes missing from the film that perhaps would have given me a bit of background to that do you think this would be better as a you know, same budget, same kind of characters and all that sort of stuff. Do you think this would be better as a TV series? I th- I think it would because in a TV series, you would narrow down in on one or two characters and you would give them the space to breathe and then you would bring in another and you would give them the space to breathe and that would build it up slowly rather than kind of throwing everything at the wall. Because, I mean, it does, it does integrate them into the film, but I was getting kind of reminders of the likes of like Justice League or the likes of Suicide Squad, which are not good comparisons because their treatment of a larger cast is really bad. Um, it's not as bad as them because, like, Suicide Squad is just terrible. It's not as bad as them. But I was thinking, you get to the point of like, okay, so now we're going to go here, we're going to meet this guy. Okay, so now we're going to go over here and meet this guy. It's like they have hmm. a conversation. The conversation ends with them saying the name of someone else and then we go and meet them. They have a conversation. It ends with them saying the name of someone else and we go and meet them. And so I really kind of struggled just to really get to grips with all of this. And as as the film ends, it also left me kind of... With Marvel films, there is a suspension of disbelief that goes on. When you watch Avengers in New York City, a portal opens up in the sky and aliens come out. The suspension of disbelief there. But the films are rooted in a reality. They're, they're grounded in that reality. By the end of Eternals, the suspension of disbelief has been pushed for me was pushed to my absolute limits where this no longer feels like a fictional version of our world it feels like a fictional world 
which in something like Guardians of the Galaxy is fine. It's out in space. You you can that's absolutely fine. It's a fictional world. You don't have that connection. You have Peter Quill, Star Lord, to give you that connection. Whereas when it's set on Earth, and I, I mean portions is set in London, which is an area I know very well. I lived there for ten years. This should feel kind of I should be able to relate to this more than any other film. But it doesn't feel like it feels just like a fictional world that. As a result, I don't care about it. And I, fi- I find myself thinking a couple of things I've never thought about a Marvel film before. I find myself thinking, is this MCU Marvel juggernaut losing steam? And that's what it felt like. It felt like this was the B team compared to what you've had before. And then I also, the, kind of, the most damning thing, as I got to the end of the film, I was thinking, I've got no interest in spending any more time with these characters. Not that I hate mm. them, but I'm just, they're not interesting to me. And by the time I left the cinema, I mean, I was questioning Marvel's decision making. And if you've seen the film, you maybe know you may know what I'm alluding to with that. I don't like being negative. And there were things to be positive about using new directors, using new visions, using a diverse cast, treating character relationships properly. All should mm. be applauded and, and have been applauded. But I just found it a bit of a mess, a bit confused and a bit boring. To be honest, Dan, that is probably one that is probably one of the most succinct and constructive bits of feedback this film has got. Even like even if it is like criticism, that's more constructive in terms of what you said than a lot of critics and a lot of the stuff you said. I do agree with. I think it was always going to be a perennial dish issue having ten main lead characters essentially that some are going to fall by the wayside. Like I really love Barry Keoghan. Yeah. Um, yeah. I watched um, uh, the Green Knight. And he's just magnetic in it. Same with, you know, films like Dunkirk, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Have you seen, um, is it American Animal? American Animals? Yes, oh, I have. Yeah. What a film. Oh, extraordinary. Magnetic is the word I would use for him. But as I said, I, I really wanted to spend a bit more time with him because I don't think he was developed enough for me to fully understand the decisions he makes in that film. But you may do. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about Marvel, really, I think. But now I don't now I've I've lost interest. It's a problem. Oh. Yeah, but how how can you develop someone who's seven thousand years old? How can you possibly understand their complete range of sort of what pulls and pushes and kind of what motivates that person? And 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 like Chris is right, I think, and, and I think you're right in a way that the reason why this hasn't been received as critically as the same as other Marvel films is 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 that there's not really much to relate to in these characters. Like there's one human analog who seven thousand years old, but for me, whereas for others that could be quite off-putting. For me, that's exceptionally intriguing in terms of a narrative. Like I love that kind of you know hanging around with people and learning and looking at how they look upon us and how they look upon the world. Like there's one character in there who is like over 7,000 years old, but she looks like 16. And I think that is incredibly intriguing that she has lived for this long on earth, but has never fully felt integrated into the human experience, never been allowed to live a life and never been able to really experience what she deems to be human i think that's absolutely fascinating i think every single character has a moment where they either struggle with adapting to the human condition or they struggle with the fact that you know they're on this task for for such a long period of time i think to do that in the time span that it does i think is a such a superb move i think one thing that I have noticed, and I thoroughly believe this, I think this film will be critically reassessed in the future. I've already seen quite a lot on Twitter about people going to see this a second time and completely reversing their thoughts on on this film, going into it knowing what they know and not and knowing that this is going for a completely different genre i mean this is this is essentially a fantasy movie this is the most this is the best dc film that's ever been made i mean this is dc this is jack kirby through and through this is you know dealing with much grander celestial for want of a better word concepts that aren't grounded that are fantastical that that have no basis in any reality that that we know and you know, there there are reasons why the Marvel films do a lot better than DC because 
they are they have that human touch to them whereas dc you're playing around with gods and this is the first time where you're actually having gods in the marvel marvel universe and i think for a lot of people that that has been kind of whip lashing but for me i just did i think i just chris and i i think we we just adjusted to that quicker than some other people will i think that on second viewings people are going to really come round to this movie and and see it for the wonderfully human experience that it is so you've been playing you've been doing what pete with call of cthulhu all right so um i'm going to come at this from a different angle this time how many different <laughs> angles can i come at the call of cthulhu um so i've been uh part of the storytelling collective it's all about collectives mm-hmm. um uh the write your first adventure call of cthulhu path uh, fall 2021 edition uh, and basically um, the storytelling collective is a it is basically a paid educational program whereby you are taught various storytelling techniques and they are have separate courses over over very specific things so one of them is like finding your creative heartbeat one of them is about how you get past writer's blocks one of them is about writing your first like adventure encounter so like how how you would construct an encounter and they mostly tend to be based around things like um writing rpgs writing rpg content so it was i believe founded uh, by a woman who did uh, big chunks of work on the dungeons and dragons fifth edition uh icewind dale um which is meant to be very very well regarded um and uh i don't play fifth so i don't know but very well regarded stuff and this call of cthulhu path um has uh, other writing experts who have gone through and done um, Call of Cthulhu adventures throughout the years. I believe one of them is called Paul Fricker. And Paul Fricker has written a whole bunch of different um, stories for Call of Cthulhu throughout throughout the years um, and writes a lot on something called the Miskatonic Repository. And this is really important to know about. because So when you create RPG content, because obviously I've created, created RPG content before because I've run adventures with you guys, right, on different systems. And Chris loved the one that we did last last time, right? So oh, it was great, yeah. Stuff. Chris loved it, as we all know. So, um, so I've created content before, but I've not really ever, you know, created called Cthulhu stuff before, and I've been really into it recently. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll sign up for the thing. Basically, what it is 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 it's mo- it's a month long, so it's all of November, uh, and the idea is that from the start of November, you start on an idea, and it's a short adventure that you can that you can run. Uh, with a couple of people or maybe a a small group Um, and then at the end of November uh, you are done and you have written the whole thing and you've laid it all out using proper set dressing and all that sort of stuff Um, and then it is published onto the Miskatonic repository which is run by DriveThruRPG which probably used in the past really cool place and that is officially sanctioned uh, Chaosium Call of Cthulhu content uh, in so much as they're like, yes, if you want to create content, this is how you do it, and this is the avenue that you can publish it, and it's totally fine for you to do that. Rather than something like where I've written like OSR stuff in the past, I've not published it, uh, but that's totally fine to just publish because that comes under this completely different license called like OGL and all that sort of stuff, which was just this big mm-hmm. open gaming license thing. But this is a very specific one that was that was put together, and then when they're all published, they all get gathered together as like a almost like a group as like a graduation ceremony of everybody who took it and published at the end of that at the end of that month of writing and i did it because i and i've realized the most valuable thing to me out of this entire thing right i've learned all about things like five senses like how you want to make sure that you're writing for all of those five senses uh, so that you're describing these things like m- much more like active voice stuff so you're talking about you do this rather than the player does this like you do that mm. to really get the player into the into the into the mindset lots of really great stuff and things that I'd, I'd kind of thought about before but not really crystallized in my mind a lot but the major thing that i got from this was a deadline because i <laughs> cannot write and publish for toffee if I'm just given stuff under my own steam. And I realized, I, I put two and two together about halfway through this thing so far. So I'm about three quarters of the way as of recording. And uh, I, I've got a little bit of time left. And I realized that I've actually got quite far with doing it, which is great. Um, and I realized I got really far with doing stuff when we were doing basic fantasy 
uh, writing up the shard stuff. And I realized it's because I had a deadline every single week yeah. that I had to hit. And I'm sure, Chris, you've probably got a, a similar thing, right? You've got a deadline. You know you've got to create something. Yeah. And so it's just like you get on and do it. If you don't have that, certainly with me, if I don't have a deadline, I'm just like, eh. So that's what I, I've come away from it from. And like I, ha I ended up having a deadline, learned all this really interesting stuff. Um, and I've started, so I've, I've basically been putting together a, an adventure and it's going to be a one-on-one -on -one like we did last time, Chris. It's going to be that kind of thing. And I sent you over the a voice recording of me in bed Right yep. in Call of Cthulhu. Well, it was stuff. a video. It was a full-on video of you. It was I don't know why I had to be a video. Blimey. But um, well, I was in bed, <laughs> and I was reading Chris the intro to yep. the to the um, to this mm. to this adventure, and basically saying like, "What do you think about it? Does it get you in the mood?" And all that sort of stuff. I've got some really great feedback. Hang on, hang on a minute. You're you're in bed recording yeah. so for Chris, asking you if, if if this is getting him in the mood. Is that is that is oh, just just yeah. so I'm clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, setting the mood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. This is. Beginning to sound a little bit predatory. Yeah, yeah. And, Chris, well, and Chris, did it get you in the mood? Yeah, I'm still trying to work out what it was for, though. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, genuinely, like I'm really interested in this, Pete. So this will be archived. This will be officially sanctioned. Then, so it'll have your name on it. So is there a, is there a kind of a precedent for this that when players will use, say, for example, your game? themselves is there like a precedent for this through drive through that they will kind of let people know and say oh thank you really enjoyed using your oh so it's got RPG. it's got all the same stuff right so like um it's like a proper it's like a proper shop like you go you go onto the thing and you down you pay money for it and you download that thing and then you run it and then you can leave reviews you can give criticism yeah. all of this sort of stuff like is a proper like you are going to be published wow um, and and it's really cool because now I don't want to I don't want to hype it up as like I'm going to have my novel published because it's nowhere near like you know it's not like getting a, a publishing deal with Penguin right it's not that kind of level of thing but what it is is like that first step it's that first step of like somebody basically gently pushing from behind and going no 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 you need to get this done okay come on come on so that when it comes out the door and I can go I've done it I I've got my first one out of the way. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like when you're creating stuff, Rich, Rich over at We're Not Wizards talks about this a lot. Just keep doing it. Just do it and do it and do it and do it because you're just going to make rubbish to begin with, and then eventually you'll get to the point where you're doing stuff that you that you panning like. for gold, panning for gold. Um, so, is there a, a prerequisite that you have to know about Call of Cthulhu to like get your? If you're burning to like write an RPG mm -hmm. and have it published, is Call of Cthulhu the only RPG that no. you have to? bloody learn about no, absolutely not no so oh. so uh call of cthulhu is um uh this path is like uh, officially partnered up with chaosium and that's great okay um uh so so there is that if you want to go down that route and, and some prior knowledge of call of cthulhu is good before going oh in. oh if you don't know about it you should not sign up like if you oh, don't okay. know if you don't know about um if you don't know about the system that you're writing an adventure for i would say don't bother because it's not going to teach you the rules like However, there is also a uh, Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition, and that uh, version of this, which runs at the same time, and that is part of something called I think it's called DM's Guild. Again, I don't really play fifth edition. DM's Guild is essentially the equivalent for Dungeons and Dragons content, which Wizards of the Coast goes, "Yep, cool, okay. If you want to go and do a proper Dungeons and Dragons thing, you can put it in DM's Guild, and you can sell it, and you can do anything you want with it. And here's all the stuff you can do, and here's a set of art that you can use, and a layout that you can use, and all this sort of stuff. And it's and it, that's really really cool." And if you don't want to use any of those, there is also a system agnostic track, which is basically, okay, you're going to publish this somewhere, and that might be on DriveThruRPG, because uh, obviously they've got in good inroads in with them. But they also say, you could put this on itch.io if you want to, um, for the system agnostic stuff. So again, if you wanted to do, if you wanted to learn more about Mothership, for example, if you want to go and write something for Mothership, and you just needed some structure and a form and like a learning environment like that mm, this is it it's really good and a deadline that's the thing that was another episode of staying in uh with peter willington daniel frost sam turner and myself chris darby hello again it's been a while since i've edited the pod i can confirm that i have been and seen the eternals for a second time and I enjoyed it even more than the first time. And I enjoyed it the first time as well, really. So uh, I'd be really curious to know, I think we all would actually, 
what your views would be on of what is the most polarizing film in the canon of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, really. Because I do think it is one that's going to be talked about for some time, really. And the way in which you can let us know is through the traditional email, stayinginpod at gmail.com is where you can communicate to us via the electronic letter. Uh, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at stayinginpod is the handle for all of those. And many of many of you uh, use those particular channels to reach out to us, either to say hello, say, oh, I disagree with that. Or have you tried this? I think you'd be into that, really. And thank you again for listening. Thanks to Coiled Spring for sending us a copy of For the King and Me. Thoroughly enjoyed that game. <laughs> really, really enjoyed that. Uh, that giddy shift to the auction at the end was probably one of the probably the most fun I've ever had in a board game with an auction uh, component to it, really. So really, really looking forward to playing that with Sam again in the near future. And thanks, while I'm here, thanks to my neighbour Matt uh, for <laughs> introducing both Sam and I to Dune Imperium. And I know he's just bought the expansion to it as well, so I'm looking forward to also playing that, really, as things in the UK are starting to relax a little bit, really, for the time being. Till next time. Bye.